This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A new forum research poll shows that uh, not only would the Ontario Liberals lose the next election if it took place today, they face probably uh, the probability, rather, of losing official party status. To talk more about all of this, Peter Grafe is with us, political science professor, McMaster University, and on the line with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Great, thanks. Uh, your thoughts on these latest polls? Any surprises here? Down and down we go. Or at the end of the day, does it matter? We still got a long way to go. Uh, I'd say it doesn't matter that much. We've got a long way to go, but it does speak to an electorate that's pretty volatile. I mean, we've seen this downward trend in the Liberal support. Although this poll has them a lot lower than other recent polls, so I mean, it remains to be seen whether something happened or whether you know we're just catching the fact that. People aren't that decided, and so if you ask them questions in slightly different ways, they'll give you a different answer. Which, again, comes back to your first thing. The election's a long way off, so people aren't really thinking about what their decision's going to be, and so we get a bit of an off-the-cough off kind of uh, response. Will the uh, 25% uh, discount in your electricity rates, by the time we get used to that and feeling good about a little lower electricity bill, will, that, will people forget that it's been punted down the road another decade or so? Uh, yes. Uh, and I think uh, that's probably what uh, Kathleen Wynne was uh, counting on. I mean, she's hoping that was their budget coming up. Uh, with Ontario's economy doing slightly better than predicted, she'll have the money to try and uh, launch some kind of programs to try and interest uh, Ontarians. Uh, so I think that's her strategy, is that we'll forget about the hydro issue and move on to other things where she might have a chance of regaining some support. Uh, you know, the question is, when you're at sort of 9% in terms of uh, people's choice for best premier, uh, how willing they'll be to listen. Um, really, there's not much wiggle room for the other parties on uh, the electricity file. Obviously, she's granted this uh, huge discount, and uh, the NDP have come back and said they're going to offer 30 uh, obviously, the PCs can't say, hey, for the good of the country, or for the good of the province, rather, uh, we're going to jack everything up again so we can pay this puppy off faster. I mean, that's not going to work. So we're pretty much stuck with what we have moving forward. Um, will people forgive and forget, or will they say, you know what, enough's enough, and uh, it's time for a change, not only because uh, of what happened with electricity, but the fact that they've been in there for so long? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big problem for this government when they try to turn the page. I mean, I make a bad decision every day. Uh, you know, governments are the same, and after 14 years of making, you know, a bad decision a day, uh, there's plenty that people can be upset about. Uh, and, I mean, we've certainly seen, you know, no shortage of things. If you go back through the Auditor General's reports uh, over the years to say nothing, you know, these recent revelations about uh, Metrolinks and their paying of contractors or the gas plants. And so, I mean, it is a government that is tired, we don't get the sense that there's a whole lot of talent in the cabinet uh, holding it together. Uh, yeah, it's a tired government. And so it's not clear that even in beginning to make moves to uh, regain the trust of parts of the electorate that voted for the, the Liberals over the years, that Kathleen Moon will be able to, to rebuild a winning coalition. Uh as far as there's always been chatter of a new leader, uh, she said several times she has no plans on uh, stand uh, on stepping down. Uh, when the poll came out last week about the 12% approval rating, there was rumors floating around that there was pressure uh, there as well. Uh, is that the answer here? And really, who wants that job? Yeah, I mean, I think those are the, the two problems for the Liberals. I mean, we're about a year out from an election. Uh, the Liberal Party of Ontario has a leadership selection process based on one member, one vote. So it's not like they can kick Kathleen Wynne out tomorrow and have a new leader in place the day after. 
the Liberal Party would be losing important weeks in the lead-up to the election, as well as resources of that party uh, trying to go through a leadership process. So that's the first problem. The second is after 14 years in power, a lot of the people who might have had ambitions to be leaders left. I mean, they left while McGuinty was still there, thinking they wouldn't have a kick at the can. Uh, others have left with Kathleen Wynne. And so, I mean, we're left with, what, Glenn Murray and Charles Souza as uh, potential people to take the helm, not necessarily people to light uh, Ontarians' uh, sort of passion for the Liberal Party on fire. And I suspect even people with leadership ambitions, when they look at the polls, they say, well, you know, we're likely to lose this next election. And so they're more likely to want to wait it out and try to be the leader who could win back power rather than being the person who will be there at the moment of defeat. Is that the point that they're at right now? Are they just, are they in the next, uh, you know, in phase for the next mode as opposed to, you know, continuing uh, to, to try to fix this uh, just rather than, than uh, uh, you know, fighting, I guess, a losing battle? Uh, they're going to do what they can to soften the blow and set them up for the next time? Uh, well, I mean, maybe people with leadership ambitions are thinking that way. I mean, I suspect the people around Kathleen Wynne uh, will keep fighting until the last moment. I mean, I think their strategy is still that uh, they can be, they can paint Patrick Brown as this really uh, conservative figure, polarizing figure who's going to do great damage to the province and then try to get anyone who might uh, support either the Liberals or the NDP to say, well, the only way to beat them is to go behind Kathleen Wynne. I mean, I think that's a strategy. Uh, The danger for her in this latest forum poll, though, is that uh, she's behind the NDP. So if one tries to run a campaign about who can beat Patrick Brown, uh, it may be liberal voters going to Adria Horvath rather than the other way around. You know, so that's one problem. The other is I think she's lost a lot of the support that we might call, you know, the right-wing liberal vote. Uh, Seems to have parked their vote with Patrick Brown. So if she tries to rally... uh, uh, to the left to try and beat Patrick Brown, she may have really written off those voters and uh, ensured the election of a conservative uh, government. Mm. Uh, how much of a threat is the NDP this time around? That remains to be seen. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of Andrea Horvath. Uh, I mean, part of it is that she's got a lot of seats in southwestern Ontario, so I think she puts a lot more focus in that part of the province than uh, appearing in the Toronto media. Uh, she's obviously trying to court favor with people who are upset with the Liberals on the electricity file by trying to find some ways to reduce rates further. Um, so, I mean, I think the threat at the moment is if the Liberal Party collapses uh, and people aren't happy with Patrick Brown or they don't figure they can trust him, she might be in a position to you know, achieve the status of a minority government. But again, everything would have to break right, I think, for the NDP in that stature. But, I mean, there's, a, I think, a real possibility for them to replace the Liberal Party uh, you know, if the Liberal Party goes in as weakened as Kathleen Wynne uh, is, and if she runs on a campaign of, well, we have to federate everyone against uh, Patrick Brown, well, that might actually cause a real downfall of the Liberal Party themselves. I remember last election, Peter, uh, there wasn't much uh, win, no pun intended, with a D, uh, created by Ka- uh, by Andrea Horvath. It, they just they didn't really seem to latch on to anything that resonated with anyone. This time out, though, it seems a lot different with her jumping on the electricity file, offering the 30%, and, uh, and proposing that uh, Hydro One comes back into public hands, even buying back shares that are, uh, you know, with dividends that are, that are already sold. Is that the answer here? Will that help Ontario? Well, I think she sees an issue which is even more popular than she is, and she's more popular than the NDP, uh, in that people uh, are upset about the privatization of parts of uh, Hydro One. And so I think she figures with that she can keep the hydro issue front and center, show herself as having a solution, perhaps unlike Patrick Brown uh, on that file. 
so, I mean, I think that's part of her strategy. Last time out, she did really run on this idea that she'd be the, the pocketbook premier, uh, really look about uh, the cost of people's everyday lives. That made her really unpopular in progressive Toronto and, you know, among Toronto star readers who wanted someone to be, you know, speaking uh, you know, the story of redistribution and uh, public transit and so forth. That was an inner platform. Uh, but it played well for her in uh, places like Niagara Falls and London and Windsor. So I think the the challenge for this time around is uh, whether she can reclaim part of uh, the NDP base in Toronto while holding on to, to those parts of the rest of the province. Uh, I mean, I think part of her strategy is to be a bit quiet uh, so that she doesn't get caught up in or caught off in issues and people aren't tired of her by the time the election comes around. I mean, it's dangerous, though, for her because if people don't know her, uh, if she does stumble, that will be what they know of her. Um, back on the issue of Hydro One, do Ontarians want this in Ontario's hands? Do they want to buy back what has already been sold? And how do you think they feel about equalization of payments, which basically means she's going to help rural residents by raising the the, the rates for urban residents, um, as opposed to cutting back or or somehow even doing what Kathleen Wynne has done? Uh, what are your will that resonate with Ontarians? Uh. I'm not sure. I mean, I think most Ontarians, as we've seen with this whole debate about hydro rates, know what they're paying. Uh, They probably have some symbolic attachment to uh, Ontario Hydro, the sense of uh, the sense that if you own it, uh, you're not getting, you know, taken for someone else's profit. Uh, But, you know, I don't think they had a really good sense about why things cost what they did and what were the decisions that produced that cost profile. And so, uh, you know, in a case like this, uh, I think symbolically it plays well. If the other parties are able to really begin to get down into details, uh, then it may be harder for Andrea Horvath to continue to defend that. People might say, well, once this asset's been privatized, you know, are we really just going to be paying more to get it back? Does that make sense? And again, right, with this equalization aspect, uh, you know, will that hurt us more than uh, it will help us? Certainly in parts of the province where Andrew Horvath, you know, sees a chance to make gains against a conservative. I mean, in good parts of the province, particularly in south, the southwest, it's the conservatives that, and the NDP that are really fighting out for those seats. Taking that position presumably is going to help her. Uh, Patrick Brown, lots are saying that he's lying low and sort of letting Kathleen Wynne flame out. Uh, obviously you know, part of their strategy is to attack him. What does he do? Does he address the attacks coming from her, or does he blaze his own trail? Well, I don't think that the uh, Conservatives have really done a great job of introducing Patrick Brown to Ontarians. I mean, maybe it's because Ontarians don't really care about their politicians that much between elections. But in that context, uh, yeah, it's probably less important uh, to, to respond to the Liberal attacks uh, because at the end of the day, that puts you on the defensive, uh, as opposed to setting forth who Patrick Brown is and what his vision is for the province. Uh, maybe part of the problem is that it's not clear what that vision is. Uh, and, you know, that got him into trouble, for instance, on the sex ed curriculum, where he seemed to be saying he was opposed to its modernization, and then suddenly he was all for it. Uh, you know, so on a number of issues, it's not really clear where he stands, but it would seem that that would be the conservative strategy at the moment, would be to introduce him to Ontarians rather than trying to deflect attacks. I mean, the other thing is, uh, I think the Conservatives maybe will expect uh, Kathleen Wynne to also begin attacking the New Democrats more, uh, because if their strategy on the part of the Liberals is really to try and federate all the anti-Conservative votes, uh, and they're they're running behind the NDP, I mean, part of what they have to do before that election rolls round is find a way to, to take Andrea Horvath's support down uh, and bring the Liberals up. So there will be attacks on Patrick Brown, but I, I suspect most of those will actually come during the election if the Liberals feel that they're above the NDP.
How do they divide their attention, you know, sort of holding the enemy off uh, at both ends? Well, I mean, I think we'll see with this uh, budget, they'll attempt to uh, siphon support from the NDP with a number of measures uh, that will probably be appealing to the NDP base. Mm-hmm. And so I suspect we'll see uh, some upward push on the minimum wage. Uh, I suspect also that there will be promises of trying to do something around child care, even if probably, just like the federal government, uh, most of the money will be you know, well in the future that it's going to be spent. But I suspect they'll lay out some proposals around that as well. So I think there'll be a few measures like that. So they'll try to regain their support on the, the right, if you like, by saying, look, we've actually balanced the budget. Uh, and then on the left by saying, and we're going to be doing these uh, new things that are important uh, for Ontario. And so, uh, and, and improving the sort of lives of Ontarians around things like child care and transit and the minimum wage. So I think that's that's the next step for them and how they'll start to try and chisel away at the two opposition parties. Uh, obviously, uh, people have different opinions of polls and, and how valid they are and this sort of thing. That being said, it's pretty obvious that we're seeing a trending down. When you start to get momentum like that, that is trending down, how, how does that play with the public's perception of the party? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, it's a bit like when you meet someone and you don't know anything about them and everyone around you says they're a loser, then you think they're a loser. <laughs> so... If you're getting bad polls, uh, you begin to wear the idea that for some reason you, des- you, know, you deserve it or it really is an accurate reflection of who you are, even if people don't have a, a real independent basis to, to come to that conclusion. So it does become a bit of a self-reinforcing spiral, and, and I think for the Liberals, then an important question for them is, can they reintroduce Kathleen Wynne to Ontarians? Is there a way they can take things that uh, aren't playing well for her? I mean, I think she's seen as... You know, stubborn. Uh, she's seen as someone who knows it all. Uh, you know, some of that may be true. Some of it may be because she's a woman. Uh, regardless, that's the kind of way people are seeing her. They have to find a way of turning that around to say, no, actually, she's a leader with vision. Uh, you know, she's not stubborn. She has a vision and wants to achieve it for the best of Ontario. So I think they have to find a way of repackaging some of the negatives as a positive. Uh, I mean, people don't have to like Kathleen Wynne. But I think they need to respect her again, and uh, I think that would be an important image issue for the Liberal Party. Does Patrick Brown have to be careful he doesn't get too caught up in the mud that's flying from uh, the Liberal camp? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the lesson from Tim Hudak, uh, Tim Hudak's campaign, is uh, that Ontarians may not like their premier, but they want to see that the person they'd replace that person with is someone they can trust. And someone who has a vision that they feel fits with their values. Um, I think Ontarians seem to be almost irrationally uh, unhappy with uh, Kathleen Wynne. I mean, again, I think there's plenty of reasons to be critical of her, but the extent of vitriol uh, against her is a bit surprising. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, they are, they're looking also for someone to replace her. And I'm not sure that they're looking for a government that's going to be uh, a real radical change. I mean, I think they want a, a new government who maybe watches the dollars a bit more closely, is, is a bit less comfortable uh, in its management of the, the public money, maybe has some new ideas. Uh, I don't think they're looking for a radical change. And so the difficulty for Patrick Brown is to find a way of saying, uh, well, maybe, you know, you, you want a change of government, but you don't want that big of a change of direction. Well, at the end of the day, I mean, if you're a member of the Conservative Party of Ontario, you actually want a big change in Ontario. So that's going to be a tension for him between a base that 
really wants to see big changes in an electorate that maybe is more interested in seeing a change of faces. Peter Graff has been with us, political science professor at McMaster University, a new form research poll suggesting uh, Ontario's wi- uh, Ontario uh, Liberals could lose official party status if an election was held today. Peter Graff, thank you very much for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, joining us right now is Fred Eisenberger, mayor for the city of Hamilton, and he is with us now. Hello, Mr. Mayor. How are you today? Great, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to join us. I appreciate this. Lots of chat on uh, on on First Ontario Centre and uh, this document that has come in on some options that we have. Are we receiving this document the way it was intended? It sort of is being portrayed like, you know, here's an idea. We either do this, that or nothing and enforcing us or, or making it sound like an immediate decision is made. Wasn't this sort of uh, we, we talked with uh, Jasper Kujawski yesterday and wasn't this whole thing designed sort of as a discussion starter on what perhaps the next steps might be? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, this is not, uh, you know, intended to be a document that gets us to a decision point and, uh, you know, we have to go now and go find some money. It was really about, here are some of the issues you're going to be facing with an aging arena. And uh, here are some things in, that uh, you might want to think about in terms of uh, what next steps could be. So I, I, uh, I see it as a very helpful exercise. Uh, I think the, uh, the information in the report is uh, enlightening. Uh, we know that these are aging facilities. They're going to need attention. Uh, they already need attention, in fact. Uh, you know, when you when you know that uh, escalators aren't working properly and the uh, facility is uh, getting to be 25-plus years old, uh, something needs to happen to, uh, at the very least, uh, provide the, uh, the maintenance and upgrades that it requires. And then, uh, you know, in the absence of uh, an NHL team, uh, is, is this uh, continuing to be the right kind of facility for our community today and going forward and uh, i think that's a worthy discussion not not decision nobody's making a decision here but certainly a worthy discussion to have so one that we can't stick our heads in the sand about and what does it say mayor when when a group like this steps forward and offers to do this some say this is great others are quite skeptical about it what are your thoughts you know, I know it's a different model, and uh, it's not one that we've had uh, in the past. But, you know, I, I, we always talk about public-private partnerships and uh, how do we get the, uh, the the business sector more engaged in, uh, you know, developing our city. Uh, and uh, in this particular instance, we've had a number of uh, uh, interested business people say, look, we're prepared to help fund this study. We don't there aren't any strings attached. We don't expect anything out of it. We just want to be uh, helpful to start the discussion. Uh, I thought that was a very positive step. And uh, you know what? Uh, we got it for uh, minimal dollars. I mean, for the fee of uh, whatever the cost for Mr. Kajaski was, which was not significant, we got uh, you know a lot of uh, good information by a lot of talented and uh, expert people that uh, deal with arenas and, and these kinds of major investments. That's, uh, in my view, very, very helpful. I know what the concern is, uh, you know, on the staffing side of, you know, the potential of uh, there being an expectation that because they've done this work that they uh, they expect that they have a contract or some sort of an agreement or uh, some some leg up in some future work that might happen. I don't think that's the case. I, I just and I think you can cover that off in in, in language uh, in agreement because I, I I understand and I believe that they're doing this. Uh, for the greater good of our city, uh, not necessarily looking for, uh, you know, a direct benefit. 
So let me take that, and that's exactly what Jasper Kujawski said yesterday. So let me take this one step farther and just play devil's advocate. I think this is a great idea, but you know, you know, sometimes I'm looking at things through rose-colored glasses here. What is in it for them, Mayor? I mean, you know, Jasper talked about this yesterday, but what do you think, from a political standpoint, is in it for them? Well, I mean, if you're in the if you're in the hotel catering business, then uh, you know, having a you know a facility or, or additional investments in facilities that bring more people into the city of Hamilton, whether it's convention facilities or arenas, is uh, in the, over the long term good for business. Uh, it's good for the city. It's good for business in general. If you're uh, if you're running a hotel, uh, you know there there's an interest in filling that hotel down the road. Uh, so why wouldn't you be a partner in having a look at uh, what additional investments uh, need to be made in your city where you operate that uh, might be a benefit not only to the city but for future future city business. So, I, I mean, I see that relationship. I don't see it as a direct benefit issue. Uh, well, you know, we, uh, all of the participants know that if there anything comes of this in terms of contracts, that uh, we have procurement processes and RFPs that we have to go through. It doesn't give anyone an advantage. It, uh, it opens the door to anyone that wants to bid. And, uh, you know, should they be a bidder? I don't think this, this kind of work that they funded in advance should exclude them, but shouldn't give them a leg up either. So what's the next phase of this? Where do we go from here? Where does this discussion go from here? Well, I hope we receive the report and, uh, and then uh, direct our staff to uh, start discussions on, on defining exactly that. What are, what are our next steps here? I mean, this is a, this is a big long-term play. This is not something that's, uh, that's an immediate issue that has to be sorted out today, but it, it's an issue that needs attention. And so I would hope that we uh, direct our staff to uh, to put some people on this, to come up with some uh, ideas about next steps and framing, uh, you know, what uh, what kind of decisions have to happen for us to, uh, to take to take it to next steps and what kind of dollars it's going to take to get there. And then we uh, we have a decision point to make thereafter. And that, uh, you know, that may take six months for, for it to come back. And, but at the very least, we're turning our minds to something that uh, that we're going to have to turn our minds to eventually, and why not start with it now? Uh, and who knows all the possibilities there? I mean, that's a very important part of the city, and obviously one that everyone wants to do right the next time it is done, wherever that is. Uh, but, but I mean, there's possibilities there that probably none of us have even imagined yet. Well, and that's part of, uh, you know, why you kind of venture into this kind of thought process is to kind of start putting things together. You know, there are other lands that might, uh, you know, come, become part of this. Uh, we have development plans like LRTs and, uh, and downtown uh, parking lots and all kinds of uh, ideas about what we want to, would like to have happen. How do you bring those to reality? And does the, uh, does the convention and or uh, 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 arena fit into that somehow? So, Let's, uh, let's open up our minds to these ideas and let's start thinking a little bit more broadly. And I do know, by the way, that any major developer uh, that's looking to, uh, to make a significant investment is looking at a bigger play than just an arena. Uh, that's invariably what happens in other communities, that, uh, that, that there's more involved with just a, a, a one revenue stream, that there's always, always multiple pieces attached to that, that, that that starts to make it attractive to a a developer that uh, wants to make a significant investment. So I would say it's a good time for us to take it to the next steps, direct our staff to do that, receive the report, and uh, and say let's wrap our heads around uh, what do we think next steps will be and what kind of money is it going to take. 
Although, Mayor Fred, you know, lots say if you're going to do a reno, it's better to do it all at the same time. Why not just take her all out what we'll do in the LRT and we'll start afresh? It's not like we don't have enough on the plate right now. Let's expand it a bit. Yeah, well, look, I mean, this, this is, uh, you know, one of those issues like, I mean, it's like, like roads. You cannot ignore your infrastructure. And, uh, you know, today we were announcing uh, uh, an enhanced uh, transit infrastructure investment by the federal government that we're going to match. Uh, you know, you can't ignore what you built. And uh, if you fail to do so, then you just, you're just pushing it down the road and leaving it with someone else, someone of the generation to have to worry about. I'm, uh, I'm not particularly on for that. Uh, we built it. We have it. It exists. We want to make sure that it's functional, our arena. Uh, so that's first step. What do we need to do to get it into, uh, you know, complete functional shape? And then the next step is what's the long-term vision? What, uh, where are we going with this? What do we need to do, if anything? And if the decision is let's just keep it in good shape and, uh, and use it as it sits, well, okay, that's fair. At least we've had a look. Uh, I can't let you go without uh, getting some comments on LRT. Obviously, a uh, big day at City Hall a few days ago. One councillor said, uh, because of the divisiveness on council, that he predicts that it may, it may not even happen. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's certainly a worry. And uh, you know what? It's, uh, it's a little rich at this uh, late date where, uh, you know, council as a whole has, uh, has directed our staff to implement uh, they've direct, directed our staff to uh, set up an office and uh, have brought in Metrolinx. They're uh, spending money on uh, doing boreholes and uh, everything that we need to do to implement this thing. So we've not been in a should we or shouldn't we stage. We've been at the implementation stage, and we signed an agreement with the province of Ontario saying we would make best efforts to uh, cooperate with them to get this project done. Uh, this is not something that uh, council didn't decide. Council definitely decided that uh, on a num- numerous occasions to move forward. And uh, now at this late date, when we're uh, seeing an environmental assessment that they've seen before, that's uh, just adjust some of the things that were currently in the plans, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing cold feet or at least uh, backpedaling and uh, some pandering and certainly not a lot of leadership being shown here that shows that there's a, a vision for our city that is not only about today, but but for our future. And I, I sure hope that uh, that members of council will put their own personal issues aside, their own personal interests aside, and and work on what's in the best interest of the city of Hamilton. Uh, that's what I'll continue to appeal to. And uh, am I worried that it's uh, that it's on a on a very thin line? Yeah, I I, I certainly am. And I would hope that those that are teetering uh, get onto the right side of this issue. I can certainly see, Mayor, this all still happening in the public. Uh, as people want this, don't want that, what have you. I, I can still see the public being uh, divided on this. But why is council still adding to the confusion that way, despite what you've just said? Well, I, I think uh, you'll have to ask them. Uh, you know what? Uh, some people have different motives. And, uh, you know, for those that... Uh, stood at the announcement and applauded the announcement and, has, and subsequently uh, voted to get the ball rolling and get the uh, get the office into shape and do a memorandum of agreement with the province. I fail to understand why today there's anything appreciably different going on that, uh, that uh, is unexpected other than it's real. Uh, that scares people, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it scared people to do the expressway, quite frankly, and it, uh, as Councillor Ferguson pointed out the other day, you know, when they were in the process of developing the 401, it was, oh, my God, what do we need that for? Mm. And uh, what, what, what would we do without those uh, amenities today? So we're in the same, same area. I understand fear. I understand uh, 
major change uh, causes people to uh, to withdraw. But uh, leadership is about uh, knowing what the city needs, taking advantage of the resources that are out there, and clearly the federal and provincial governments are aligned towards transit. We are already paying for transit operations in Ottawa and in uh, in the Kitchener-Waterloo and in Toronto. Uh, you know, out of the provincial tax base that we help contribute to, we're paying for those projects. Why we wouldn't want one in Hamilton that's going to be a benefit here is beyond me. So uh, we, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful. We, uh, one last question, Mayor. We've been getting lots of questions on cost of operation. I mean, questions yep. that aren't answered, and you know, which I'm not sure we'll ever get those until, of course, we move farther along in the project. Um, but what, what, how do you address cost of operation questions at this point? Well, there's, there's cost and then there's revenue. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the whole impetus for getting into this in the first place was all about renewal and generating more tax dollars off of the uh, existing infrastructure that we have along King Street and Main Street. Uh, so when you look at the opportunities there, the opportunity to generate more revenue through commercial and residential taxes, uh, in my mind, that more than offsets any additional operating expense. And, and the operating expense is estimated to be potentially six million dollars on an annualized basis uh that is not a lot of money to make up uh on a billion dollar plus budget to uh to find and and the ability to find the additional revenue through that uh, economic uplift that uh comes with uh lrt in a very significant way that's already happening in kitchener waterloo that's already happening in places like toronto uh, i think it's a wash at the end of the day we generate enough revenue to be able to offset the operating cost. So I think it's a I think it's a red herring. Uh, yeah, we may not know every detail. Not unlike the project uh, like Pier Seven and Eight. So we've we've invested eighty million dollars in Pier Seven and Eight to do the infrastructure and build out the uh, the, the the infrastructure that's necessary to support uh, the the future development there. But we don't know what the future value of those lands are going to be. We don't know what kind of bids we're going to get. We don't know what the economy is going to do and whether or not it's going to, uh, you know, jack up the interest rates and cause a stall in the economy, which will stall the project. We don't have all the answers, and we rarely ever do. But we have expectations, and we have uh, uh, the best information possible to suggest that there's going to be a greater benefit in Pier 7 and 8, and the same is true for LRT. All right, we'll let you go. Can you tell everyone where you're heading? Right now? Yes. City Hall. <laughs> Is that the big day? How do you mean? I, I missed you on that one. Do you have anything big planned this afternoon? Oh, yes. Uh, I'm uh, heading back to City Hall. I'm, uh, I've got uh, a full slate of meetings set up uh, this afternoon and then uh, off to... Uh, Two events tonight. The Charity of Hope uh, is on tonight at uh, Carmen's, a great charity event with uh, uh, Chantal Kraviasak is going to be the entertainer, and uh, they're going to raise some funds for some uh, some needy folks in our community. A great event, and the Teed event is on this afternoon as well, or later this evening, which is the uh, uh, Equestrian uh, Disabled uh, Association that uh, provides uh, equestrian training and uh, and therapy for uh, folks with disabilities uh, and they're they're having a fundraiser tonight and I'm going to be pleased to be there to help them out. The man never sits still. Mayor Fred Eisenberger with us, Mayor for the City of Hamilton. Fred as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Talk to you soon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
It just seems we uh, we can't go a day without uh, tre- checking into the Trump file and find out what's going on uh, down south of the border. Now, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, you might remember his name from, of course, being a part of uh, Trump's campaign uh, and then, uh, I guess, uh, being forced to resign after it appeared that he uh, lied to uh, Vice President uh, Pence on what his affiliation was uh, with certain people involved in, uh, I guess, Russian allegations. The investigation so long has, uh, well, Michael Flynn at this point, he says he's willing to testify in this Russian investigation as long as he's given immunity from prosecution. Uh, What does that mean? Does he have something to hide or is he just protecting himself? Uh, Let's bring in Melvin. Levinsky. He is the professor of international policy and practice, Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy, University of Michigan, and is with us now. Hello, Melvin. How are you today? Fine. How are you, Scott? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, is there something here? Does Flint have some? Or Flint have something to say, or is this just typical? He's protecting himself. Well, I think he. he... I'm, I'm certain he wants to protect. He wants to protect himself. So this is some measure of protection for him. But, but it is kind of strange if you think about it. Um, it certainly lends credence to the uh, the allegations that he may have promised the Russians uh, during you know uh, during the campaign that um, you know we would be soft on them. We take sanctions off. Otherwise, I wonder what he would what he would be worried about. So I don't know exactly why he would do it, uh, but there's something there, and uh, he doesn't want to be prosecuted for it. Uh, has Flynn been asked to testify on this committee? Why is this coming to light now? Well, there's, you know, I don't know what the inner workings of the committee is. They've asked several people, and the question has become, well, are they going to be closed hearings? For example, Mr. Manafort, who has no classified information as far as i know uh, wants to wants to testify in private uh they don't want these things to come out the the problem is of course it's nothing is private here no whatever happens and whatever they testify somebody is going to leak something and it will come out i think they're better off doing it doing it publicly so that they have control over over you know what they've said and they know what they've said and people know what they've said in flint's case you know, here's a guy, after all, who was head of the Defense uh, Defense Intelligence Agency, kind of uh, criticized for the way he managed things, uh, gets into the Trump campaign, is a close advisor. You see pictures of him very close to Trump all the time, whispering in his ear. And then all of a sudden he's out because he doesn't he doesn't tell the truth. Uh, he's paranoid, uh, whatever. he want, uh, So he wants to have immunity. Something comes up. You know, a line that he do, he doesn't want to uh, take the Fifth Amendment, which where he he could say, "Well, I I'm not, I don't want to testify against myself," but if he says that, there's even more suspicion. So this kind of puts an umbrella over him, so he didn't get rained on so much if he's if he's going to testify. I think that's probably it. It may not be anything specific, but my sense of this is that in fact, the conversation with the Russian ambassador. Uh, probably went too far in terms of, you know, why otherwise would they have not responded? I worked in Soviet affairs when I was a uh, foreign service officer, and uh, the Soviets always retaliated, and we did too. Every time, if they kicked somebody out, even, a, you know, a spy, or if we did it, 
they would always retaliate. That's just the way they they work, and the Russians have worked the same way. So it's very. It was when I heard that they they said basically, oh, we're not going to you know, lower ourselves to this. I said, there's something going on here, and I think. So that's my sense. I think that that probably, and we know that because the the phone call or whatever it was was intercepted, quite legitimately, since the tap was not on Flint, on Flynn, but on uh, but on the Russian ambassador or whoever the hmm. foreign officials were. So, yeah, it seems to me that it's a sort of general protection that makes him feel safer in testifying. Maybe not something specific, but there's certainly a kind of sense that there may be something that is even more damaging than what we've heard already. Uh, his defense saying uh, claims of treason and vicious innuendo. How serious is this for Flynn? Nobody. We haven't had anybody. We don't know. And, and, and comp, you know, and uh, indicted on treason charges. That would have to be pretty severe. You know, basically looking to under to undermine the national security of the United States, that's not going to be the problem. That's an exaggeration, I think. Uh, sour grapes at all from Flynn? Is this just to clear his name? Perhaps he's upset the way things went down? Oh, I'm sure he's upset. I mean, here he was thinking, I'm the guy, right? Yeah. Here they, they appoint, uh, Mr. Trump appoints a Secretary of State who is not so experienced, who seemingly was not even told that his department's going to get cut by a third, and Flynn maybe has grand design. I'll be like Kissinger and Nixon. I'll be able to control things here on foreign policy, uh, you know, from the White House. Um, you know, sort of delusionary in a, in a way. And then all of a sudden, he's out completely. Uh, he, he probably is peeved. He probably thinks that uh, he was too loyal and that... Um, he didn't do anything wrong in terms of what Mr. Trump wants to try to do, which is basically, you know, it hasn't, happened, it hasn't been said recently, but basically take a different tack on, with the Russians. And um, uh, it could be. It could be just a, an element of uh, saying to the Trump campaign, by the way, um, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to have immunity and I can say anything I want. And so if there are other embarrassing things that might come up, He's able to say him. Hmm. Maybe that that could be a motivation, I suppose. When will but we wh- don't know that yet? When will Flynn testify? If he does, do we know that? We don't. No, we no, we don't know this. This is something that they'll negotiate out. You know, they got a lot of people. They want to bring back the FBI director. They want to bring back the former uh, acting uh, attorney general. Isn't this uh, one of those things they they should nip in the bud pretty quick? Well, I think they need they need to do it, but frankly, I think the House, where all the controversy is, is not going to be able to do it. There's just too much uh, there's just too much poison. After uh, you know, uh, Representative Nunes went to the White House in this very and made this very foolish explanation about, well, I had to go to the White House uh, to talk with these people. And after all, the people he was talking with are people of the president's staff. They could have gone to the president and said whatever whatever they have to say. So I think, there, and you know, the back and forth between the Democrats and the Republicans on this has made it poisonous. So it may be that only the Senate will be able to do it. The Senate's a more deliberative, well, somewhat like you have in, in Canada as well. I mean, it's a more deliberative body. They, their terms are longer. Um, you know, it might, it, uh, it's, it's not spur of the moment. They don't have to run every two years. So it may be that we'll have a better in investigation but it has to be cleared up because look 
the president has a you know he has a program and it's not going it's not going anywhere can't even get his you know health care through um if if the focus is all on this then what's how is he going to carry out what he said he was going to do during the campaign it'll all be on this and fr- frankly he's kind of to blame himself by doing this damn tweet every morning. <laughs> uh, Melvin Lemitsky is with us, Professor of International Policy and Practice, Ger- uh, Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. Uh, Melvin, uh, y- you know, Russia, 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 that's all we keep hearing. What's he hiding? W- w- what does Russia have on him? Are these just past business dealings? Uh, you know, we're putting out a net for for Russian uh, for Russian uh, interference. Uh, his associates, he is getting caught up in the net. Uh, is it something big? Is it something business related, or is it just them not being transparent and stupid and shooting themselves in the foot? What are they hiding? What's going on? Well, I think there's a lo- I think there's a lot of shooting themselves in the foot. But I, there have been connections. You know, Manafort had some connections. Well, they say, well, he wasn't. He didn't have a major role in the campaign. My God, he was the director of the campaign for yeah. a while. Um, we have now this uh, J- the son-in-law Jared Kushner, who has had some negoci- uh, had some uh, business with a, uh, a big Russian bank. Uh, Mr. Trump went there. I don't uh, know, and I don't put any credence in the stories that somehow he was in a you know a compromising position that they. You know, caught him with a camera or something in his in his hotel room. Um, that's happened before, but I wouldn't think they would do they would do that. Um, I don't think it's blackmail in a sense. I think probably he, you know, I think he admires Putin because <laughs> Putin has the kind of power that maybe Mr. Trump would like to have. So he can. Do you, know, do you think? It, do you think honestly, it's something that simple? It's just he's he's just not careful. It's not a matter of being careful. It's a matter. See, I think he, it's quite possible that he believes he's not. He's not an expert in foreign policy. It's quite possible that he believes that his pledge on terrorism, destroying ISIS, may uh, be advanced by having a relationship with the Russians and a, the strong leader that is Putin is. Then Melvin, why doesn't he? And a, and, a, and, a, and a leader that is ruthless. And that he'll be able to accomplish that. He said he's going to destroy ISIS. So why does, you know, some people may look at that and think, you know, well, gee whiz, uh, the fight on terror does require a worldwide plan. Why does he just not articulate that? Uh, Maybe he'll get some people on his side. You got me. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? Uh, I just had a a class on this, and we're trying to, you know, think about these same things. Is it that he's impulsive? Is there a grand (laughs) strategy behind this? Does he somehow think, you know, I don't want to be, after all, he got elected president. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I try to find, what is the sense sense of this? Why is he doing the tweet? Is Is this a strategic plan? Why is it that Tillerson doesn't take any press with him? Why is it that Tillerson <laughs> says to NATO, hey, you know, I can't, you know, my calendar, I can't go meet with you. Is there something behind this? And I'm flummoxed over this. I, I really don't know. I think it's still early. But at the same time, Mr. Trump is not a fool. Hmm. He may be impulsive. I'm kind of thinking, actually, I'm kind of hoping that maybe there's a grand strategy somewhere buried in there. It's like, Ron, you know, Ronald Reagan used to say, um, you know, he sees a boy digging in a pile of manure. 
And he says, why are you digging this pile of manure? And the boy says, well, there must be a pony in there somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, um, look, at, we're perplexed, you're perplexed, the Mexicans are perplexed, a lot of people are perplexed at this point. Maybe something will come out of this, and maybe there is a kind of strategy to this. Right now, I couldn't say that. How can this committee that's supposed to be investigating all of this move forward when there's confusion over the chairman, that being Nunes? Yeah. Uh, I, I think it can't. It, I think there's just so much poison now. Well, and it almost seems as if he's doing the same thing that Donald Trump is doing in the sense that he's just yeah. trying to create confusion around the, uh, around the committee well, to, to almost uh, discredit it. Either that or he's dumb. You know, I don't think I don't think he is. From what I've seen, he seems to be a smart fellow. Um, yeah, I, uh, is he being controlled? Is he a puppet of the White House? You know, he was a, he was uh, involved in the campaign. Some people think he's just a White House puppet. I don't think so. Um, but this whole so what about the whole secret running over the whole episode of running over to the White House to yeah. tell the president like, oh, I'm going to get some goodies out of this one when his own staff is telling him what they could tell the president. It just it doesn't make sense. So I don't think there's good prospect for that committee doing very well. The Senate, I think, will, could do it. Uh, maybe something will come together. I frankly think that the argument for a special investigation outside, a, a nonpartisan one outside, is probably the best thing that could happen, but I'm not sure that will happen either. All right, I can't let you go with asking you a couple without asking you a couple of quick qu- uh, questions. First of all, where's healthcare going? Where, where's that now? Well, Trump has said recently that he would be he would be o- open to negotiating, trying. I, they can't call it. They will never want to say it's the same plan as Obamacare. Yeah. Okay, so if they can put a, their label on it and fix what's there because it does need to be fixed. Um, I don't worry about it because I'm, you know, I'm in a government, I have a government pension, I have government mm-hmm. uh, health care, and I have some from the universities here as well. But uh, for a lot of people, you know, it's true. Premiums have gone up. The, uh, the deductibles are outrageous. If they could come together and fix it and call it whatever they want to call it, something else besides Obamacare, I think there's a prospect of doing it at some point. Now, is he going to? The question is: Are they going to go after this now, or just let it, as he said, explode? Yeah. And go after? He can't do tax reform, I think, because he needs to change health care in order to get enough savings to be able to do tax reform. So, mm. it's a matter of sequence, um, and they have to be much more. Um, how should I put it? More, not so much compromising, but try to get the Democrats on board too. Because the Democrats certainly want to not have the thing explode. And I, I think they're probably right about that maybe exploding as the costs go up. People would rather pay the penalty of not having health care than pay the premiums that don't, you know, that go up and that don't do them any good because the deductible is so high. So, Melvin, how does, how does he ride the fence between the Democrats and the Republicans uh, because the Republicans won't support his bill, so he's going to get some help from the Democrats? And after all of the name-calling and mudslinging, do they want to do anything to help this president, even if it is saving yeah. Obamacare? Yeah, it's, it's payback time to a certain extent. Yeah. You know? If you look at the... Um, uh, you know the hearings on the on Judge Gorsuch are about well he is a judge now so 
um, it's payback time. They're, the Democrats, there's a certain amount of, you did it to us, we're going to do it to you. You, do, you wouldn't even bring up the uh, appointee that uh, Obama wanted on the court, wouldn't even have a hearing on him, so, you know, now you're going to suffer from what you did. There's a certain amount of that. At some point, you know, these there are people who are patriotic, they're good Americans, they want to see things done, and there maybe at some point they'll find some middle ground, but sure doesn't look like it now. You, well, you, you know as well as I do, you're not that far away from all of it mm. after all. Where is the travel ban right now? And by that I, I ask, um, it's obviously... It's going to go to the courts. Obviously the Hawaiian judge has has uh, continued to push this forward. Uh, is he waiting till he gets who he wants in the Supreme Court and sees what happens there? And at the end of the day, he said this was all about 90 days or 120 days till they figure out what's been going on. Yeah. Uh, by the time this gets approved, it'll be 90 days. Wouldn't they have figured out what's going on and it's not even needed anymore? Well, I think that that may be the case, but you know, some of this is just pure showmanship. Uh, you can do extreme vetting. Uh, part of the problem with the, I you know, I was in the Foreign Service, so I had people working for me who issued visas. I was ambassador to Brazil. We had there's a big visa issuing place. I was ambassador to Bulgaria, so we had these things. The the um, uh, the problem is you do need information from the government to determine if a person is a real tourist or a businessman rather than an overstay who stays illegally or has something nefarious in mind about what he's going to do. And in those six countries, it is the case that getting records or getting some kind of cooperation is difficult. So there is something behind that, and the system has to be fixed a little bit. But uh, to just put uh, put a ban on it, I think, was done more for the message sent, more than that's going to really fix the system. So at some point this will work. And I think uh, most people are saying, I'm not a lawyer, a lot of lawyers are saying that if it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, they're probably going to defer to the president. And the president, if that happens, will have a lot more ability to do the sort of executive order thing rather than have legislation on this. Hmm. So eventually it may happen, but, you know, it takes a long it takes a long time in your courts, takes long in our courts to get up to the very... Supreme Court. So in the meantime, you're right. Time's expired. Time's expired. What do we ha- What do we have to do? The other ironic part about this is he wants to cut the State Department. But if we're going to do extreme vetting, we're going to have to hire a lot more State Department officers to be on visas lo- visa lines doing this. Mm. And you know the biggest cost in any operation usually are personnel costs. So I say there's it's it's kind of ironic. That's why I think it was more for the message than it was for the actual procedures which are pretty good but you know always there's always mistakes made in one kind or another melvin levitsky has been with us professor of international policy and practice gerald ford school of public policy university of michigan melvin thank you so much for the time and insight great discussion thank you you're welcome it was good to talk with the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on am 900 chml